0: Today, Jan and I host another meetup of the Starfish Student Success Book Club. This time, our book was Robot Proof, Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. It's by Joseph Aoun, president of Northeastern University, and I think you'll find it to be an interesting discussion as we review the author's approach to modernizing the higher education experience. Hi, and welcome to the Student Success Higher Ed Podcast. I'm Graham Tracy.
1: And I'm Jan Day.
0: Let's get started. Hey, Jan. So, time for another book club. Yeah. Uh, This time we read Robot Proof, Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, and um, I found it fascinating. But before we get into it, Mm -hmm. can you just give us a little rundown on who the author is and
1: a little overview? So, uh, the author of Robot Proof, Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, is a professor, is actually the president of Northeastern University, his name is Joseph Aoun, and uh, he wrote this book, he's a, um, from Forbes.com, they say, he is a respected voice on global and experiential education. President Aoun came to Northeastern from the University of Southern California's College of Letters, Arts and Sciences where he was the inaugural holder of the Anna H. Bing Dean's Chair. He received That's his a p- mouthful. It is, yes. it is actually. <laughs> he received his PhD in Linguistics and Philosophy from MIT and advanced degrees from the University of Paris and St. Joseph University in Beirut. Um, and he's won all kinds of awards. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, American Association for the Advancement of Science, past chair of the American Council on Education and the recipient of the Academic Leadership Award granted by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. So well, he might know a thing or two. I
0: think so. About he's...
1: <laughs> education. And, um,
0: he's a worldly guy.
1: He's a worldly guy for sure.
0: Northeastern. Is actually known for its cooperative at experiential programs yes so for a long time Mm -hmm. probably I I think
1: over 50 years
0: right so makes sense that he's writing about this
1: yeah Um, so I was struck so Graham you chose this book Mm because you spotted it I like the
0: cover no like the the cover (laughs) is
1: very cool uh, which we should describe for our listeners it's a uh, image of a robotic style hand uh, that is gleaming and shiny and it's holding a, very delicately, a butterfly. And I think, you know, we weren't planning to talk about this, but I think this is a really important, it's a, it's a lovely analogy in terms of what the book talks about, in my opinion, because where the butterfly's delicate little legs are touching these sturdy yet graceful fingers on the robotic arm or hand, there's, I mean, it's the the most delicate of touch points. And it's the intersection of sort of the beauty of evolution and what is life and living with the beauty of what is human engineering. And this book, or the cover, shows the butterfly is on top of, or it's above the robotic hand. And I wonder if there's something there about a story of we can rely on a foundation of human engineering and all the wonderful power and uh, freedom that use of robotic technology can give life. But life is ultimately in charge mm. of, or above,
0: yeah. the I engineered was, thing. I was almost thinking of it also as, because it's the hand is sort of either releasing or pinching the legs. And I was thinking about <laughs> it as releasing the butterfly legs, almost with some freedom in mind, that mm. perhaps if you um, follow the principles in this book, then you can free your mind to a different way of educating yourself to overcome the coming robots. I don't know. That was another
1: thought. I had. Oh well, uh, kudos to <laughs> the book jacket designer. Uh, <laughs> it's a hard job, and I think they've done a lovely job with with the art. Um, so, so Graham, this... you chose this book actually uh, quite a while ago, yeah, and uh, we're. We've been working our way through a number of, of student success related higher education books. And we were itching to get to this one. We finally are here. Um, my question for you is, why do you think he wrote this book now?
0: Well, aside from the fact that I think he helps promote the Northeastern University, which I'm sure is part of it. Uh, And their
1: approach to education. And
0: their approach to education with experiential co-op, learning, that sort of thing. I think that um, it is really a combination of things probably. One is obviously Technology is coming at us fast and furiously with artificial intelligence. Everybody's got an Alexa or a Google Home or something and they're, or or at least one of those companies is pushing to have it in your house nowadays. Um, And, you know, it's becoming clear that a lot of uh, jobs in the future may actually go away Mm -hmm. um, by way of technology displacing them. And so there's this fear, I think, in the population at large um, as you read articles and different newspapers and other things, just coming up in popular news, not just higher education news. And um, that combined with the fact that there's been such a push for STEM um, in higher ed overall and through government programs and just everywhere you look, it's STEM, STEM, STEM. And you're seeing declines in liberal arts um, programs and that sort of thing. So. Um, seems to me this is a good time to yeah. start rethinking how to leverage the best of all of those things and and figure out how to, as a society, educate people to overcome some of the potential obstacles with technology being one of the largest coming at us right now.
1: Yeah, I think timely, it's, it's spot on. Um, I mean, just thinking about the number of large corporations that are investing in robot-driven or AI-driven cars. Oh, yeah. Having fleets of trucks and cars that won't have a human behind the wheel. And you think of the 24,000, no, there must be more. than Maybe there's half a million Uber and Lyft drivers out there. Must be. Um,
0: Feels like there's a half a million here in Washington, D.C. <laughs> <But. laughs>
1: Anyway, uh, no, I think you're right. I think uh, it's the right time for this book, and I think he raises some very interesting ideas about how uh, we as individuals, as parents, as educators and institutions can explore ways to robot-proof ourselves and our, our jobs.
0: Yeah. I think that as I was reading it, It really resonated for me as, and and I'll get into some of this a little bit later because there's some other stories happening around the liberal arts that are bugging me that I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast, Jen, uh, as you know. As I know. (laughs) (laughs) But as a liberal arts undergrad major and now being in technology and gotten a master's in technology and so on sort of see it from both sides of the coin, I mm-hmm. guess, as the liberal arts and technology and so on. And the book really resonated because he very much combines all of, all of those things. All of those different academic disciplines are really important to what he would argue is, you know, the, a foundational education for the future future workers of America, if you will, or just future educated people in America, Mm -hmm. because I'm not necessarily sure he's arguing that it's just for job's sake, as we always argue in higher ed is, you know, what's the purpose of education? Is it really just to get a job or is it to really create, you know, civilized society? Is it, you know, there's lots of different Mm -hmm. ways you can go and a topic for another podcast maybe. Um, But I was really heartened by the fact that he was able to connect some dots between liberal arts and stem in in a way that was thematic that was you know could speak to if I were if I were a dean or department chair or something and I was having to rethink my curriculum you know there's a good map that he puts out there that says yeah you know philosophy or art or uh, history or these things are not you know, any less important in a more technological world. In fact, they may be more important in some ways. And so here's a way to think about the curriculum where you could weave in all of these various topics together, including the technological, the engineering, and so on, such that at the end, you're going to get a much more well-rounded set of people who can do more creative things, more things that maybe machines will not be able to do. so that was one of the things that as I was reading I was like yes 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 that's why I said jam we have to read we this for fucker The, book this book. <laughs> the um, I guess should we just dive in and dive talk in. about some of the uh, different themes and sort of a yeah, uh, little ahead. overview so I think th- the first three things that he broke down in the book were around this idea of having three literacies, as he calls it. And I almost think of them as the core curriculum, like a way to think about your general education or your core curriculum is to say, we need to cover for every type of student three things. You know, technological literacy, people need to be not only familiar with technology and tools, but just also understand how it works, how they work. And so there's some element of coding or being able to understand how coding works you know, programming. Um, is an element that he argues very few will get away with not knowing in the future. He's not arguing that everybody out there become a code monkey of some sort, right? But rather it needs to be something people know at some level in order to function in the future, right? So that's one level, the technology literacy. Then a data literacy. So number two is data literacy. And data literacy is all about not just, you know, being able to crunch numbers but also interpret them to ask the question why or what if what will happen if these numbers were bear out or if the projections are you know um, go up by 20 percent? what would the impact be on us from a societal perspective things like that so it's really more interpretive about data so Mm -hmm. literacy and data and then finally the human literacy, and this really touches more on those humanity subjects, some of those liberal arts subjects, Um, being able to, you know, effectively communicate, um, engage in the world at large, but engage in conversation, engage in different kinds of topics, um, and being able to essentially, I read that as connecting the dots, so being able to connect the dots between the data that you see, and culture, and life, and so on and so forth, so...
1: I'll add to that, not necessarily a curricular thing, but a synthesis approach. And that is, he advocates these three literacies, but also the way one then gets the experience to connect those dots in different contexts. So you may learn each of those literacies sitting in a classroom in a traditional style lecture or whatnot. Um, but that the true learning or taking it to that next level where you go from I've learned a fact, I've learned how to apply it in the context of the classroom, and then going out into like the wild yes. where you're in an office setting or you're in a cooperative experiential learning environment where you are presented with day-to-day problems that that business or organization or group is trying to solve. And you're there with your smarts and your wits and your cleverness with probably a team trying to figure it out. And that that act of being in the moment in these unfamiliar settings where the rubber hits the road is when those robot-proof learning moments happen. Mm -hmm.
0: And you know what's interesting, as you were saying that, Jan, I'm sitting there thinking, it's hard to articulate this point, right? (laughs) And this is one of the reasons why I think the liberal arts gets slammed all the time, right? People cannot make the link to how does philosophy uh, map to a product management decision or, um, you know, any kind of a decision in business world, let alone in the higher ed administrative world that Mm -hmm. we're talking to probably today. So, um, you know, I find he does a good job of trying to do that and connect it and sort of giving you the the words and the themes to be able to help people make those connections. I I watch it in my own kids now who are in college and doing some internship experiences and things. And the ideas that they're coming up with, they're in the liberal arts, and then they, you know... My son starts talking about this idea that he has about connecting this with that and the other thing and I'm like, Whoa, okay. He knew nothing about banks and now he's in the banking world and he's talking about connecting public policy and banking and products and how technology works and so on and and it's you know, this sort of idea of going through and he's doing both this liberal arts and an information sciences minor, so the combination of those two coming together and being able to make connect these dots. I think he's on to something here. Yeah. uh, uh, The author. Um, There were four other areas that he talked about cognitive capacities. Okay. And so um, these were really ideas that he said should I guess stream through the curriculum, right? So in other words you can still teach all of the various topics that are happening in every single major minor combination that you have on campus but that if you really want to think about well how do we make some of these courses more meaningful for the future then there should be a stream of these capacities going through it. They should be looked at, the syllabus should be looked at through the lens, these four lenses if you will. you know that there's a critical thinking lens like how are we enabling or you know building up a capacity for critical thinking there's systems thinking how are these connected you know how are all of the various components uh, connected together Um, there's this idea of entrepreneurship so um, just fostering creativity through entrepreneurship and so on and then um, what he calls a cultural agility, which is sort of a unique way of talking about um, you know, global awareness and being, uh, understanding that it's, you know, the whole world is connected and that we need to be thinking about how different things that we're doing, new inventions, new, um, what our job, you know, where our job fits in culturally, not just within the United States, but across the world Um, because we're all connected now Mm -hmm. so um, just some interesting ideas in terms of the way institutions can start thinking about say reassess their curriculum over time and so on Um, just some really cool themes
1: I'd say you know as you were talking I I thought back to my one of my um, first jobs where I was a hiring manager and uh, working for a consulting company uh, here outside of DC and I was having to look through hundreds of resumes to try and find you know the right person to fill some of these positions and we were inundated with people of uh, resumes of all kinds and I consistently found myself drawn to the skills that uh, philosophy majors, religion, uh, environmental science, geography, history, uh, ethics, mm-hmm. these students who'd come out of various kinds of higher institutions with the, the the training and the experience of thinking, critically, like all the things that that you just listed, uh, thinking in systems, making the connections across time and space and conceptual linkages were much more successful in the kinds of consultative work I needed them to do because they came in with a natural curiosity And understanding that they didn't know everything and they wanted to learn more. And so I can't train that. Right. Right. But I could take that and then say, I'm going to make you an Oracle DBA. And they'd be like, awesome. And so (laughs) um, a number of them, after they'd been with me for a while, we were hanging out. And one of them came back for like Christmas break and said, Jan, I went home for wherever home was. And my parents were so excited because their philosophy major daughter had a job. <laughs>
0: just in general. Just in general. Okay. They were so
1: excited. And that it was this highly technical uh, career path that she she hadn't envisioned for herself and didn't major in that, but found she was a natural at doing database administration and her parents were over the moon and because of course <laughs> you I don't know I, what a don't... philosophy
0: major might be unless you think they're gonna be a professor
1: right exactly exactly right. so time and again I think um, these co- people coming out of higher education inst- institutions with those skills are they are set up for success
0: yeah um, I. I think that's a great example. That's what I feel about for myself. I was a history major somehow landing in the technology space, right? And I can draw the map for it or whatever, but I wouldn't have ever anticipated it. Um, and I wish I. You reminded me of an article I read, and I think it was uh, actually Google, who had done an evaluation of their employees and look to see you know where the stem majors obviously they need especially pro you know they need programmers so they're hiring programmers or coders in many cases they also hire across
1: other other domains domains,
0: right um but in this um in this particular article if i'm remembering it correctly they were talking a lot about the fact that they were realizing they had too many people that were too stem heavy they were too into the coding and that they're best employees were the ones who were most creative who also had the liberal arts or humanities um, or some other kind of, like you were saying, the philosophy major who also was interested in technology or mm-hmm. the programmer on the side. They went to a boot camp, but they were actually an undergrad in some other, you know, in religious studies or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, I think the challenges, the challenge for institutions in particular, um, and I, I feel it acutely for my daughter right now who's talked to the, um, the career services department uh, at points where they often have a hard time helping these, the students make direct connections between these sort of more broad topic areas and a job like a DBA. Mm -hmm. or a product manager, or an advisor on a college campus, or, you know, you name it. They don't always, there's not an advising major. Um, You know, you come at it from a variety of different ways. And so I think colleges and universities need to think a bit more about how to map things for people, especially when it comes to things that are not, don't have a direct drawn line.
1: I, and, and getting back to um, the book and Professor Aoun, President Aoun championing the use of the co-op yes. as a way to connect, connect the dots not just in terms of learning, mm-hmm. uh, synthesizing what that student has learned over the course of their academic career, but also by putting that knowledge into practice learning what they like, or what they're good at, yeah. a, you know in banking, or in uh, consulting, mm-hmm. or in product management, or whatever their particular co-op or internship is all about. Right. I think that is, um, that's a marvelous experience, that they've clearly baked into the way Northeastern does, uh, structures their education, uh, but how I mean you're you've got kids in college how are you talking to them about getting that kinds of hands-on experience?
0: I'm definitely pushing it that's for sure. Um, internships I've just been talking about them almost the same way when they were in you know, Middle, middle, and high school, where we just talked about college. You're going to college, right? But I mean, there was never a question. That's the expectation. Right? Yeah, it was an expectation, but it was just even like in normal conversation all the time. That's the way it was. So. In fact I was talking to one of my children recently about this fact and they were like I guess you're right never I I wouldn't have even thought of not going to college so sort of doing the same thing like well when you get an internship and when have you applied for internships have you gone to the Career Services office so there's all that I definitely see and now that they've done some internship experiences the dot connecting that we're talking about is definitely happening and um, they are going in different directions than I might have otherwise thought um, originally as well. Um, So I totally agree with the idea that, you know, a co-op experience or an internship experience and multiple of them is the way to go. Hard to do because they're competitive, they're hard to find. Um,
1: Yeah, can we talk for a moment about, this is one thing that I struggled with reading this book First of all, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, but as I was reading it and and absorbing the information about co-ops and internships and and their importance and and thinking, yes, everyone should get that experience. You know, I think back to the fact that, like you're saying, they're competitive, they're hard to get, they're prized, and they can be out of reach mm-hmm. for many students. Not because they're not academically or socially ready but because they can't afford to take an internship
0: oh yeah that's true especially if they're unpaid right the good news is more of them are paid uh, nowadays because I think there were some law changes a few I don't know three four five years ago or something So more are paid than they once were but totally understand I mean it, if you know You have to get to the jobs. You have to be able to um, dress
1: for the jobs. Dress
0: for the jobs, exactly. And to even get the jobs in the first place, you have to have some experience from high school days maybe if you're a traditional age college student. So it's it's a challenge all around. And then, you know, a lot of people don't know that this is that important. They start thinking about... Um, the idea that, well, let kids be kids and they'll find their way and all of that is good and true to some extent, right? But um, at the same time, the world's gotten a little bit different. Things are ex- much more expensive. College is a lot more expensive. The risk is higher. If you gra- if you don't graduate with debt or you float around and you take five years or six years to get through it, if it's a four-year institution that we're talking about, uh, that's a lot of money mm-hmm. on the table. So... Parents being able to know that this is a critical thing and you know coerce or convince or <laughs> educate their children on that fact. And <laughs> Jen, you know me and you've seen me interact with my kids. I don't know how you would categorize my.
1: I'm totally brainwashed, <laughs> just like they are now. I've drunk the Kool-Aid.
0: Yeah, but I can understand that people are at a disadvantage. Yeah. If they don't either have a parent that's talking about it, um, I think or, especially you know, or have the money and especially the means, your, your a car
1: your first gen, you don't come from a family or a community situation where assumptions about higher education and the value of an internship or networking with people in positions to suggest you do that internship or work at the elbow of someone. So anyway, that. Uh, that's my only that that wasn't really touched on in the book. Mm-hmm, Strategies mm-hmm. for uh, making those experiences more generally available, and and I don't know this institution, and maybe mm-hmm. they have programs in place to yeah. ensure that that kind of access is readily available across right. the board.
0: I think they have a lot of partnerships mm-hmm. at uh, Northeastern that are pre-built around the co-op experience and that sort of thing. I think one of the differences of the co-op versus an internship, right, is the idea that you're then bringing back the learning from the work experience back into the classroom in some way, right, whereas an internship, you're sort of on your own, like, go right. find something this summer, um, and we'll counsel you and guide you and help you with a resume, but. Um, it's less connected, right? <laughs> you you have to make the connections for these things, as opposed to them being connected within the curriculum or the design of the academic approach. I would say. Um, so yeah, uh, it's <laughs> that part is uh, I, I think I think institutions will struggle with that for a while. I mean, yeah, I think they know they that they need those... to talk to their students about this fact but how they have put the systems in place to be able to really accelerate or amplify students' ability to do this is probably a, a, a new struggle for mm-hmm. you know, career offices and advising offices to, to Well think luckily about.
1: they will have this blueprint uh, to some degree in the book and obviously he seems more than willing to come talk to folks interested in learning how to put these kinds of systems and processes in place. So I think um, that's
0: a great conclusion.
1: Yeah. Any, any last thoughts? What, would you recommend the book,
0: Graham? I would definitely recommend the book. Um, it is, like you said, a blueprint. It's a little bit academic, but it's not a difficult read. And, but it's not a popular read, if you will, like some of our previous This isn't uh, Sitting books. on the Beach. It's not a beach read. <laughs> <laughs> but it will give people the words to help make change on their campus if mm-hmm. they're so inclined.
1: Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for recommending it.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Jan. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Also, show notes can be found on our website at studentsuccesshe.com. And if you have questions or thoughts to share, please leave us a comment on our website, Facebook, or Twitter at SuccessHE. Until next time.